pray that your spirit would teach us more about yourself. God, that it wouldn't just be us growing in head knowledge, but it would be a response of our lives to praise and honor you. Would you receive all the honor and glory from our time here together? In Jesus' name. We've come to Bradford, Massachusetts to talk about the life and missionary labors of Ann Judson. Our story actually begins back in the summer of 1806, when five students from Williams College gathered in a place called Sloan's Meadow to discuss and pray about the hotly debated religious topic of their day, foreign missions. They were interrupted by a thunderstorm and were forced to take shelter beside a haystack. This gathering, nicknamed the Haystack Prayer Meeting, was significant in the origins of the foreign missions movement in America. Four years later, in 1810, students from that meeting helped form the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Two years after that, it sent out its first missionaries. I'm standing in front of the monument that celebrates that beginning of American foreign missions. Anne and her husband, Adoniram, were part of that first group, and Anne was the first female missionary to be sent from America. Her example was such that she is still considered the most influential female missionary in American history. They eventually settled in Burma. Now, other missionaries to Burma had either departed or found employment helping the Burmese government. It was left to the Judsons to see the first Christian converts and to establish the first church. As we will see, Anne went through extreme trials during her short career as a missionary. She sacrificed to keep her husband alive and by rescuing Adoniram's life, she rescued the Burmese people's hope of having the Bible in their own language. Through her letters, journals, and memoirs, we see a woman who found happiness in God while living in the midst of the most tragic events. Anne was born on December 22, 1789 in Bradford, Massachusetts. And her father was a deacon here at First Church Bradford. Anne seldom felt any serious impressions about God during the first 16 years of her life. Her mother, who did not understand the way of salvation at that time, told Anne that if she abstained from sin and was a good girl, she would escape hell. Anne became very conscientious in saying her prayers morning and evening. She even gave up her favorite recreations on Sunday. She was confident that these changes would ensure her salvation. But as she grew older, she began to attend balls and parties. Social events like these 
completely occupied her thoughts. She found herself neglecting prayer in the Bible. When her conscience bothered her, she silenced its complaints with the thought that she was old enough to attend parties and too old to say prayers. At age 15, while reading The Pilgrim's Progress, she resolved again to be serious about religion, but it made little difference. She neglected her school studies and spent her time focusing on her appearance and wasting her life on empty pleasures. As God continued to deal with Anne, showing her the emptiness of her life, she reached a point of desperation. In this condition, she prayed and fasted for two weeks, crying out for mercy. She writes in her journal, after spending two or three weeks in this manner without obtaining the least comfort, my heart began to rise in rebellion against God. I thought it unfair of Him not to notice my prayers and my repentance. She goes on to write, My heart was filled with hatred towards a holy God, and I felt that if admitted into heaven with the feelings I then had, I should be as miserable there as I could be in hell. In this spiritual anguish, she admitted that if she could destroy the existence of her soul with as much ease as that of her body, she would quickly have done it. During this time of spiritual despair, Anne was a student here at Bradford College. Her father, John, was a co-founder and the academic dean. We're filming today in Hazeltine Hall, and behind me is a memorial dedicating this building to her family. In her last year here, God began to show Anne the beauty of salvation by Christ alone. She said of Jesus, He appeared to be just such a Savior as I needed. A view of His purity and holiness filled my soul with wonder and admiration. I desired to commit myself unreservedly into His hands. And so in 1806, during her final year at college, and the same year as the Haystack prayer meeting, at the age of 16, Anne was alive in Christ. She looked at everything differently now. She considered herself the servant of God in all that she did. She studied diligently because she felt it was her obligation to improve her mind for the glory of God. Her desires were changed. She writes in her journal, My chief happiness now consisted in contemplating the moral perfections of a glorious God. I longed to have all people love Him. I felt happy in the consideration that so benevolent a being governed the world and ordered every passing event. With new views of God, her views of sin were changed. She now hated sin because it was against the God she loved. She writes, I am resolved through the grace and strength of my Redeemer to maintain a constant warfare with my inbred sins in whatever situation I may be placed. The changes in her were obvious to everyone around her. One friend wrote that Anne now seemed to speak of nothing but the God of redeeming love. And that is the God you will be considering this week. In Genesis 17, we read these words. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. All the covenant hopes in, included in that simple statement, not only for Abram, but for all the world, that the Messiah would come from this man's family. All of them were built on the promises 
based on the reality that this God was all-powerful. And that 99-year-old man believed even though all he had was the words of God. Our God is almighty or omnipotent. He possesses all power. Our working definition this week is this. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatever he pleases. God's power is like himself. It's infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. As his essence is immense and it cannot be confined to a place, as God is eternal and cannot be measured by time, so God is almighty and he cannot be limited in regard to action. And that's been our definition. We've had an opportunity this week to look at the all power of God, so now we're faced with a decision. And this decision really faces us every time we come to the scriptures and we see what God says. Will we have a life of faith as our response or will we have a life of doubt and unbelief? Faith, what is faith? It's not positive thinking. It's seeing what God reveals to be true and giving him a wholehearted, corresponding, adequate response. A life of doubt may look a lot like the life of faith. It may include a lot of religious language. But in reality, the life of doubt is one in which, in the practical daily choices, the person lives as if God is not as he describes himself. Today we're going to look at a selection of passages which show both paths, the life of faith and the life of doubt. But I need to warn you before we look at them. Both paths are religious paths. And in these passages, both paths are populated by people who I'm sure would have said to you, we believe that God is almighty. And yet there are two very different lifestyles that result from two very different choices, faith or unbelief. Well, let's look at those who chose to doubt. In Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23, we read an account in which Jesus is tested by a group of Sadducees. And this is what we read. On that day, some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking him, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, they say, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, so also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, now that's a difficult question, isn't it? It's based on an Old Testament law, and it's given so that the woman would not be destitute. If she married, no children, husband dies, who will take care of her in her old age? So it's a law based in the mercy of God. And it sounds like a tricky question, but this is what the Bible says. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now the background of this whole test is that the Sadducees, which were part of a, the Jewish priesthood, 
and they were part of the leading group of Jews called the Sanhedrin, which was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. While the Pharisees were the very conservative and strict sect, the Sadducees were more of the liberal side. They rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection, and they attempted to demonstrate the absurdity of a resurrection with this question. Now, Jesus goes on to deal with their question, but before he deals with the question, he deals with the real problem underlying the question. In verse 29, you are mistaken. Your question is useless. You don't understand the scriptures, and you don't understand God. In this case, the power of God. Now, the Sadducees were ignorant, but it was a willful, chosen ignorance. The strange thing about the Sadducee group was they rejected most of the Old Testament. In fact, they really focused on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. How much they might have learned about the power of God if they would have included all of God's Word. Now you, you have Bibles, you have 66 books, but do you have your favorites? Maybe you have five favorites. Do you spend all your time rereading them? I go to the Psalms. I, I go to the Gospel of John. Are there large portions of Scripture that remain unexplored in your life? How much you might have known about God had you been more diligent? It was a willful ignorance on their part. But also, it was a very practical ignorance. I don't think the Sadducee would have said to Jesus Christ, You know, you're right. I, I don't know my Bible. I don't know the power of God. They would have clearly disagreed with Christ. But he was right. With their lips, they would have said that God was all-powerful, but with their lives, they denied that God was the Almighty. It was a practical doubt, not theoretical. It happens in churches today. Have you ever considered how often the questions that are asked in churches, not just the ones that are voiced, but the ones that we have on the inside, how often these reveal the fact that we really don't understand the scriptures. We really don't understand the omnipotence of God. Let me give you a few examples. Questions that regard your own salvation, like this. I've lived so long for myself. I have so many regrets. I have hurt so many people that I love. Even if I came to Christ now, what could he do with a life like this? Isn't it too late for me? That's a question that people ask when they don't understand the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Or this question, I've sinned so often and the stain is so deep and my heart is so polluted. I know that Jesus can save certain people, good people, like those people in church. But I don't know that he could really save me. Well, you're mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. What about questions regarding evangelism. Questions like this. I've witnessed to my loved ones, to my friends, family, co-workers, to a spouse, to a parent. But I've witnessed so often and they've rejected so often. They don't even pay attention. They don't even get angry at me now when I talk about Jesus. They just ignore me. They pity me. They're so far from God. I wonder if they're too far from God to be saved. Well, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. What about questions regarding the definition of a Christian? Have you ever considered how these are connected with our understanding of the power of God? Questions like this. 
When a person gets saved, can they live the rest of their lives backslidden and still be a Christian? Well, the only person that really asks that question is one that doesn't understand the power of God. Or this question, is salvation always an experience that really changes people in a way that you could notice? Does there have to be noticeable fruit? What about questions regarding church outreach methods, growth methods, something like this? Since churches seem so effective today in their efforts to reach the culture, shouldn't we adjust the church to fit the culture so we can be more effective? You're mistaken, not understanding Scripture and not knowing the all power of God. I think it's very easy to be a Sadducee today. I mean, nobody really calls themselves a Sadducee. But it's easy to be mistaken about Christianity because we don't really know what the Scripture says about God, and in particular, about the almightiness of God. Well, we'll leave the Sadducee. I want to kind of come closer to home. In 2 Timothy, this is the final letter that we have from Paul in the Scriptures. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we read this. But realize this, he says to the young pastor, that in the last days... Difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Difficult times will come. Another way of translating that, perilous times will come, Paul says to the young pastor. Can you imagine what, he's, what he would think would be perilous? Well, there's the Jewish persecutions. Christians are being killed. Rome is ramping up its hatred toward the church. We tend to look at the externals when we think of perilous times. Legislation that's anti-Christian. But the internal dangers are always more dangerous for the church. Sins that separate us from our own God. Let's go back and read that list again. And let me ask you, which one do you feel doesn't really fit? All right? Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, not God, holding a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. What's that last one, isn't it? I mean, brutal, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, no self-control, haters of good. Well, that, those are bad people. But then we find out that Paul was warning Timothy that these are not people that live out there. These are people that come into the church and they have a form of godliness. They have an exterior, a shell of Christianity. But they deny the power of godliness. Kind of seems like that last one doesn't fit, but really, it's just as dangerous as all the others. It's just as perilous. Think about it. You can have every one of those sins that Paul lists living in a life of a person who has a form of Christianity, but not the power of Christ. It happens all the time. But not one of those sins in that list can peacefully live with the power of Christ 
in a life where there's form and substance. Ask yourself, do you have the form of Christianity? I mean, that's a good place to start. It's not enough, but it's a great start. Do you have the outer expressions of a Christian? Do you come and gather with other believers and worship God? Do you read your Bible? Do you have a set of beliefs that we think, well, these are Christian beliefs? Well, that's good. What about ceremonies? Do you take the Lord's Supper? Have you been baptized? Well, that's good. Morality. Do you have a list of do's? Christians do these things, so I need to do those things. Do you have a list of don'ts? Christians don't do these things, so I'm, I'm, I need to have a list of don'ts. Now, none of that is wrong. In fact, all of that's good, but it's not enough. You can have all of that and still be one of these people that Paul describes. Do you have the form of godliness? But do you deny its power or do you have the power? Is there a life-altering quality that you experience when you come into contact with the God of this book? God says in the Bible that the Bible will be like a hammer and like fire. So have you ever found that to be true? Does God break through things that you feel that are unbreakable? The old sins that are like rocks right in the middle of the road, does God take a sledgehammer to them? Are there cold, frozen spots of your heart and God thaws them? Places where there are pollution and the fire of God purifies them? When you open this book, when you sit under preaching, when you pray, when you sing, are you coming into contact with God in a way that is effective? Does it actually alter you? Now, when we think of power to do certain things in the Christian life, we need to be very discerning because there are other engines that we can kind of stick in the car of a Christian or a person who claims to be a Christian. There are other powers at work. For instance, take the power of pride. You can do a great deal with pride, can't you? You can't do enough. You can't be a Christian, but you can sure look like a Christian. Think of this. Do you have enough power to make outward changes, but only outward changes, not inward changes. The Pharisees had that. Jesus describes them as a cup, really beautiful on the outside, you know, your favorite new coffee mug, but on the inside, it's terrible. Or like a tomb, and it's been whitewashed, it's freshly painted, it's beautiful, it's carved, it's impressive, but on the inside, it's death. Is that you? Do you only have enough power for outward changes? Pride can do that. You don't need Christ. Do you have only enough power for public duties, but not enough to motivate you to private devotions? So you can ask yourself, am I more faithful to come to a church prayer meeting where everyone will see me than I am to go to my own prayer closet and shut the door and meet with the living God where no one will see me? Do I talk more about Jesus in church than I, really, than I really ought to, you know? The Christian labors to find words to describe how we feel about our Lord. But the hypocrite, the hypocrite labors to find enough words to make them look like they love the Lord. The energy that works within your soul, does it move you to private devotions, to prayer, to scriptural study? Or do you only have enough strength to do public things? Do you only have enough power for dealing with embarrassing sins? But what about the sins that are culturally acceptable? What about the sins 
that even people in your church would say, well, that's not a big deal. I don't think you should be worked up about that. The Christian is so very different. The power of God within the soul, the Spirit of God transforming us, it makes us yearn to have inside as well as outside clean, to have private devotions as well as public ones, to put to death once and for all respectable sins as well as the embarrassing sins. It's a very great difference between what pride can do and what God does. We could say it this way. Spiritual pride has polished up many people. But only the power of an almighty God remakes a man or a woman. Well, that's the path of doubt. The Sadducees, the hypocrites in Timothy's church. But what about a path of belief? It's very encouraging. I want us to look at a man who believed what he read when he read about the power of God. And it changed a great deal about him. Now, we're only going to be able to give three examples. It's the Apostle Paul. Let's agree on a principle before we go any further. What God does will reflect God. All right? The reflection will not be as great as God. It will not be a perfect reflection, but it will reflect God in some measure. So if Christianity is a thing that God does, if He's the one behind it and not men, then we would expect Christianity in some measure to be reflecting God. If God is the Almighty, then the religion of Christianity, unlike every other religion that has ever been or ever will be, Christianity will reflect something of the all-power of God. If it doesn't reflect the power of God, then we really have to ask ourselves, is it Christianity? Now let's come to this man, Paul. As a church planner, as a pastor, he faces so many problems, so many troubling issues. Decade after decade, we find Paul patiently laboring with people who are stumbling along, breaking his heart at times, bringing him joy at times. But I want us to consider how the power of God, just that one attribute, how the power of God is at the heart of so much that Paul chooses. Who God is guides Paul in knowing how to respond to church situations. I'll give you three. First, Paul was freed from the temptation to be clever and manipulative when he talked to people about God because he believed in the power of God. It is very difficult for us, isn't it? It's hard to talk about God to other people sometimes. Maybe you're a shy person. But even bold people, it's hard to talk about God to people that know us well. And because there's a great deal at stake here, the soul of a man or a woman, a child, we really want to see them take what we say seriously. And it's very tempting to cross the line and to begin to hope in your clever arguments. Or worse, to use manipulation. But listen to Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So stop. Christ sent me primarily to preach, but I'm not here to use my clever speech. He was a very intellectual man, very well educated. He could have spoken above everyone's head. But I'm not doing that, he says, because the gospel, 
The simple gospel is the power of God to save people. I don't have to do it. He wrote to the, first, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. How did it come, Paul? It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So this is Paul's conviction. Almighty God is behind the gospel. Almighty God has sent this man with this simple gospel. And Almighty God, the all power of God, is continually reflected in the way that men and women and children are changed by this gospel. So there's no need to be clever or manipulative. In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it begins with these words. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. How freeing for Paul. I'm going into a new town. They don't know me. I'm not sure why they would listen to me. I'm the off-scourings of the earth. The Jews hate me. The Romans doubt me. But I represent an almighty God, and the gospel is his weapon. And he's free. He doesn't have to be clever. He can be afraid and aware of his weakness. But he knows that when people are changed, it will be the power of God. Are you as convinced as Paul was? We could ask ourselves this question. Do, do we witness? Do you tell people the simple truths of the glorious labors of God on behalf of sinners? Have you told people what he's done? I know that many of us live in religious cultures and so you think they already know, but have you told them? And you're able to tell them, even though you're not very confident in yourself, and maybe like Paul you say, I, I was pretty fearful, I'm weak, but I know the omnipotent God is behind the gospel and this is what he uses to change people. And so I'm willing to witness, no matter how many times people reject. And when you witness, are you free from the temptation to be clever and cute and manipulative? Paul, before Christ, I doubt he would have ever said, when I go and talk to people, I just use simple language and I feel my ineffectiveness, my insufficiency. Now, Paul was very arrogant. But after he meets Christ, he's free. The second effect upon Paul when he believed the omnipotence of God, is that he was able to spot false teachers. Now, no matter how many times we're warned, it seems that Christians find it difficult to spot false teachers because false teachers come quoting Jesus Christ and we care about Jesus Christ and we love the words of Jesus Christ. And so if they hold up a book and it's the same book we have, the Bible, and they read the same words we're reading, even though their teaching is off, we just find it hard to stand up and say, that is wrong. You're a false teacher. Christ makes it clear, though, we are not to listen to everyone who talks about God. We're not to listen to everyone who quotes this book. John chapter 10, Jesus said to the crowds, If I do not do the will of the Father who sent me, then don't listen to me. Paul knew that one way to spot a false teacher was that he would not have power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this. 
Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. All right. The situation is that there are false teachers sneaking into the Corinthian church when Paul is far away. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. How can he say this? Paul, of all New Testament writers, is extremely clear that he's concerned about words. If you hear a teacher who gives you different words about Jesus Christ than what I've given you, he says, let them be accursed. If even an angel comes and gives you different words than what I've given you about Jesus Christ, do not listen to the angel. How can he say, I know there are false teachers, but don't worry, I'm coming and I want to know. Well, I don't care what they say. Here's what I want to know. What kind of power do they have? It just doesn't sound like Paul to us. What reasoning is there behind this? The very next verse, he says this. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Here's what we see. It's not that Paul doesn't care about their teaching. It's this. He knows that a false teacher does not represent the almighty God. So the words of the false teacher, no matter how impressive they appear on the surface, they will not change people. Those false doctrines will not make that false teacher holy, and they will not make the people that listen to him holy. So Paul looks for an effectiveness, and he doesn't sit back and say, oh, who am I to say that's a false teacher? He looks at their life, he looks at the product of their teaching, and he says, no, I know what you are now. Your words sound beautiful, but they're empty of power. They don't change anyone. Paul's free from believing every liar when he realizes that the omnipotent God will be made visible in the teachings that he gives. Let me give you the third thing. Paul's grasp of the power of God affects all of his expectations of a Christian. What do you expect of a person that says to you, I've, I've embraced Christ today. I accepted Jesus. I gave my life to Christ. Jesus saved me. However, they would come to you and say that. What, what do you expect? Do you, have a, do you have large expectations? Do you say to yourself, oh, I can't wait to see. I know what's coming. There will be such transformations. Or honestly, have you heard that so many times and it's not done anything that you have very low expectations? And so you don't want to discourage them. But within yourself, you say, we'll see. Paul's expectations of a Christian are revealed all through his writings, his prayers. So in Colossians 1, he says, I'm praying that you may walk worthy of the Lord. The word worthy there means matching, like coordinating clothes or the weights on a scale. They're even. Paul says, when I look at the glory of God and the glorious call he's given you through Jesus Christ, I'm expecting that your new baby Christian life is going to match that. Paul, how can you, how can you have that expectation? Well, we say, when I was a baby Christian, I had high expectations. When I first led a person to Christ, I, I had high expectations, but that is not Paul's situation. By the time he writes Colossians, he has been pastoring for decades. And he has broken his heart many times, and he's explained it to us in his letters, when he sees people prove false. How can he hold such high expectations still? Listen to these passages, and notice how the power of God is at the heart of each of them. Ephesians 1.19 he says, I'm praying that you will understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Or Colossians chapter 1, I pray that you may walk worthy of the Lord. How? 
strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Your expectations of a Christian really, really, they reveal what you think of the power of God, not of the individual that's talking to you. Do you still have biblical expectations? Well, the good news when we look at a great reality like the power of God is that it's not our job to make God powerful tomorrow morning. We're not going to wake up and work it up for God. It's who He is. It's who He's always been and always will be. And if you're a Christian, you've been brought to that all-powerful God. Your job is to get the dust of the sinful and inadequate views that you've allowed to accumulate, to get it out of your eyes, to open the scriptures, to lay yourself before him, and to plead with him, Oh God, open my eyes and lay hold of my life with this truth so that like Paul, not the Sadducees, not the hypocrites of Timothy's day, but like Paul, everything is different now. Let's pray. God, you know our shortcomings. We have very little acquaintance with real power. And whether it's in creation or in a nation or in a capable person, these are powers that you've loaned to them. But to meet a being who is all power, God, we need your help. We don't want to allow inadequate views of you to take root in our souls, but we see them. So help us. You've begun a work of salvation in your people, even when we didn't know you. So don't quit now, God, but continue this work so that we might day by day gain ever-expanding views of the weight of your majesty. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I mean, just as a dictionary definition, obviously, when we say that God is omnipotent, we, we, we technically say that he can do everything, omnipotent. He has the power to do everything. But when as Christians we say that God is omnipotent, we, are, we seek to be more biblical in our expressing of what that means. And so, um, catechisms, for example, when they've asked the question, what does it mean that God is omnipotent, have said things like, God is able to do all his holy will. Um, in other words, God doesn't do anything that is contradictory to himself, but he is able to do everything that is consistent with his own being. So, clever people say, well, if God is omnipotent, can he create a stone that's too heavy for him to lift? Um, and there they're using a, a, they're using a dictionary definition of omnipotence rather than a biblical definition of omnipotence, that kind of question is incoherent in biblical terms because the omnipotence about which we're speaking is about God's omnipotence. It's not about some abstract omnipotence, but the omnipotence of this God. The omnipotence of God is the power, might, or strength of God to accomplish all of His good pleasure, all that He wills to do, all that He has decreed in eternity past, he has the capacity in and of himself to accomplish all those things. God's omnipotence is not uh, random, it's not arbitrary, it's not cold or clinical. It's always the 
overflow of who he is. And his power is therefore tied to his nature. And so when we think of God's omnipotence, we're not simply to conceive of it as a majestic, almighty power, but majestic, almighty power that is defined and directed by the holy nature of his essential goodness and grace. And the, the omnipotence of God, therefore, is so weighty, it really, um, it crushes pride. And, you know, I think my observation of a lot of evangelicalism is that it, it kind of ministers to our pride. And, um, and, you know, I'm a minister of the gospel, and I see that uh, in all kinds of ways in the, in the Christian world, um, position-seeking, lack of humility, um, a desire to be impressive. Um, all of that is a fruit of not bowing down before the God who is absolutely sovereign. Unfortunately, we live in a day where the omnipotence of God is nodded to, on one hand, but not really practiced within the majority of our churches. We see it displayed, or the evidence of this, when we attempt to help God along in accomplishing His purposes, when we don't trust fully in the proclamation of gospel truth, but we somehow think that we need to prod and convince or create services or create experiences for people. The Word of God with the Spirit of God is sufficient to accomplish the work of God in the hearts of His people. If we don't believe that He's powerful enough to do that, we end up giving in to other things, whether it's the type of uh, musical preference or some other type of performance uh, within the church and within the way that we approach God and, and worship Him corporately. God's power is a glorious truth because the best of Christians battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Indwelling sin is a constant reality and battle for the best of Christians. There isn't a day, I hope, that we do not say, O wretched man that I am. And one of the dangers is that Satan can come to us and more than suggest to us that we have to just settle for that reality, settle for the constant and um, unequal battle that we have with indwelling sin. But then, as we read God's Word, we, we learn day after day after day that His power is able to come and subdue by His mercy and grace, because God's power, as I mentioned earlier, isn't naked power, isn't bare power. It's a power that comes to His people full of grace and full of mercy and full of tenderness. And that power is able to vanquish any sin. So, when we say that God is omnipotent, we also mean, we imply by that, even if we don't say it, that God is lovingly omnipotent so that when He manifests His power, uh, He does that in a loving way or in a holy way.
When we see on the pages of the Bible the strength of God displayed in what, what appears to be miraculous ways, it's helpful for us to remember that, to know that though He has given us strength and given us responsibility, but to believe that the omnipotent God is the one who's controlling our lives as individuals and He will accomplish full sanctification, that we will one day see Christ because of the omnipotence of God, because He will accomplish all of His good pleasure, and He's determined to sanctify us completely in Christ Jesus. As Pastor John Snyder was teaching, I don't know if you caught the line, but it stood out to me that he said, if you know the power of the Almighty, but you don't live by that power, it is unbelief. Sit and think about that for a minute. Which would cause us to cry out, oh God, we are wretches and we need your help. Let's pray together. Father, we have spent this time learning about your power, your omnipotence. And Father, we are also challenged that, Lord, to know you, to know this God who is a God of all power. A God who would give us his very same nature through his spirit to walk in that power, to abide in him to bring him glory. Oh God, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness for the times we have walked in unbelief. We've gone and done what we thought we wanted to do. We've done what we ought not. Father, we pray that as we gain knowledge about you, that it would be an active knowledge in our lives that we would live according to your power and that you would receive all honor and glory from our lives. Only pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.